Hello, it's Monday, the 28th of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang Woo. President Yoon Sung Yeol has promised that South Korea will develop its own space rocket for a moon landing within 10 years and a Mars mission within 23 years. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. North Korea has revealed photos of Kim Jong-un's daughter for a second occasion, fueling succession speculation. We'll discuss it further for our in-depth today. And then coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, a World Cup special, we dissect South Korea's scoreless draw against Uruguay last week and look ahead to tonight's key game against Ghana. Let's begin Korea 24. President Yoon Sang-yeol has unveiled a roadmap to push the nation forward into the space age with a moon landing aimed for within a decade. This as the government launches preparations to establish a South Korean version of NASA. For more on this and our other headlines of the day, we're joined in the studio by KBS World Radio news editor Eunice Kim. Eunice, hello. Hello, jang So the goalposts are clear. A moon landing by 2032 and a Mars mission within 2045. So it sounds very ambitious. What did the president have to say about this vision? Right. So establishing an aerospace agency was one of President Yoon Song Yeol's campaign pledges to secure competitiveness in the global space industry and vitalize the country's aerospace sector. So on Monday, we heard from the president presenting his future space economy roadmap, a long-term space plan that aims to transform South Korea into one of the major space powers. It includes a Mars mission by the year 2045, as you said, and this would be in time for the 100th anniversary of independence from Japanese colonial occupation. In line with this goal, President Yoon says South Korea will develop its own space rocket engine for the lunar mission within five years and begin mining the moon for resources from the year 2032. To meet the ambitious goal, the Ministry of Science and ICT announced today that it has launched a team tasked with establishing the country's very own space agency. It's being called the Space and Aeronautics Administration, or SAA. The space agency is expected to be composed primarily of experts for now and will be under the uh, auspices of the science ministry while remaining separate from the existing Korea Aerospace Research Institute. Right, so big plans for Korea's space program. We'll see how that develops in the years to come. Okay, moving on. Back here on Earth, far more grounded concerns. A unionized truckers' general strike continues for a fifth day, calling for the extension and expansion of the freight rate system guaranteeing basic wages, which is set to expire by the year's end. Meanwhile, the government has maintained a zero-tolerance stance, uh, moving towards potentially triggering a return-to-work order for the first time. Can you tell us more? Mm -hmm. Government officials and union officials did hold their first meeting in this ongoing collective action that is already dealing a blow to the nation's logistics system, putting to a halt, in some cases, shipments from major distribution facilities across the country. The government, in fact, estimating that the volume of containers entering and exiting the country has dropped to around 21% of the daily average as of 10 a.m. Monday. Now, the government... uh, 
officials and the union officials meeting did begin Monday afternoon and is said to have wrapped only with each side underlining their differing positions. The day, in fact, kicked off with the government elevating the crisis alert level to the highest in the four-tier system to serious. This paves the way for a potential return-to-work order to be triggered for the first time as early as tomorrow. We should add, though, that the government and the union did agree to meet again for talks on Wednesday. So what happens if the truckers refuse to cooperate with the return-to-work order? Mm. So the return-to-work order would require uh, striking workers to suspend their walkout immediately and return to work. Otherwise, they would face criminal prosecution and or a cancellation of licenses in addition to potential fines as well. President Yoon, who in a previous Facebook post had called the truckers' strike an act tantamount to holding the country's logistics hostage at a time of economic crisis on Monday called for a firmer establishment of the rule of law between labor and management. At a cabinet meeting that he will hold on Tuesday, the government is expected to review whether to greenlight an order ending the truckers' work stoppage. Uh, that is a uh, just a step before a call that would officially be made by the transport ministry. As for the Cargo Trucker Solidarity Union, which is, of course, under the KCTU or the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, they express their regret that the government is making such moves even before their negotiation was given time to produce fruit. Okay, we continue to watch how long this standoff can continue. Moving on, big game tonight. South Korea set to face off against Ghana in its second World Cup Group H match in a few hours' time. Can you set up for us? Yeah, Game 2 commences at 10pm Korea time tonight as the South Korean national football team takes on Ghana at Education City Stadium in Qatar. Fans will be hoping for a win after that hard-fought scoreless draw against Uruguay in last Thursday's opener. If the 28th-ranked South Korea beats their 61st FIFA-ranked opponent Ghana, it would be a record fifth collective victory for Asian Football Confederation member countries in the World Cup group stage. This follows Saudi Arabia, Japan, Australia, and Iran uh, at least having one of their matches in the group phase. A record six AFC countries are participating in this year's tournament, including the host Qatar. Yes, uh, we'll be previewing the Ghana game more fully for our Monday Sports Roundup segment coming up later in the show. On to other headlines next. A police investigation team probing the deadly Itaewon crowd crush will soon decide on who to request arrest warrants for as it continues to question persons of interest in the tragedy. Mm -hmm. A flurry of questioning sessions ahead of those decisions. Investigators brought back Song Byung-ju, a superintendent-level officer who was in charge of the Itaewon area's 112 emergency hotline on the night of that tragedy for a third round of questioning on Monday. Song is accused of failing to promptly report the incoming emergency calls to then Yongsan police chief Lee Im-jae. Uh, the team also conducted a second interrogation session with Park Sung-min. He's the superintendent general level officer who allegedly ordered the deletion of a safety risk analysis report drawn up prior to the Halloween festivities. Yongsan district office chief Park Hyung was also grilled for a second time as were ex-Yongsan police
police chief Yi and Ryu Mijin, a senior superintendent-level officer who was in charge of the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency's emergency call monitoring. Meanwhile, the government has announced a set of safety management measures for gatherings held without an official organiser, now just shy of the one-month mark since that fatal Itaewon crowd crush. Right. The initial reasons given to the lackluster emergency response, of course, was that there was no manual to dictate how to react to a spontaneous accident, as was this Itaewon crowd crush. The measures were discussed on Monday during the second session of a minister's meeting on social issues presided over by Yi Chu-ho, the Deputy Prime Minister for Social Affairs and Education Minister. The officials decided they will improve a manual on enforcing the disaster and safety law by having heads of municipal governments take charge of safety management for public gatherings that occur without an organizer. The government also plans to establish an ICT-based crowd management system to enable the early detection of accident risks and activate precautionary steps. Let's turn to North Korea next. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un encouraged and promoted scientists and officials involved in Pyongyang's recent launch of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Indeed, yeah. North Korea's official KCNA, Korean Central News Agency, on Sunday posted a report showing leader Kim Jong-un taking a photo with the scientists and the officials who contributed to the successful launch of the Hwasong-17 ICBM, known also as the Monster missile. He was once again joined by his daughter, believed to be his second of three children, Chue. This time she was wearing a black coat. Kim Jong-un reportedly called the Hwasong-17 a great creation of the North Korean people, urging the state to beef up efforts to further bolster its national defense capabilities without being complacent about its achievements. The KCNA said Kim expressed his expectation and belief that the country's scientists, technicians, and munitions in Industry workers would make their best efforts to expand and bolster the country's nuclear war deterrent. And there's an anniversary coming up, the fifth anniversary of North Korea's declaration to achieve a full nuclear force. Uh, no special events, though, have been detected, according to Seoul's Unification Ministry. Mm-hmm. The ministry in charge of inter-Korean affairs says it has yet to detect any developments regarding the fifth anniversary of North Korea's declaration to achieve a full nuclear force, which falls on Tuesday, November 29, 2017, is when North Korea had issued that declaration as it also tested for the first time the Hwasong-15 intercontinental ballistic missile. Seoul's unification ministry said the North State media has remained largely silent on the upcoming anniversary, though a return to nuclear testing is always possible once a decision has been made by leader Kim Jong-un. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. You bet. On November 19th, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un revealed his daughter to the world for the first time. State media photos showed the pair at an intercontinental ballistic missile test launch site, wearing a white puffer jacket, black pants and red shoes. She was seen holding Kim's hand. 
presumed to be Kim's second child, Chue. She made a public appearance again last Sunday during a photo session with scientists and officials involved in the North's recent launch of the Hwasong-17 ICBM. And this is fueling speculation over Kim's succession plans. To analyse what the disclosure of Kim's child could possibly mean, we're joined on the line now by Shreyas Reddy from NK News, uh, Seoul correspondent. Uh, welcome to the show, Mr Reddy. Thank you for having me. So before we delve into the photos and what happened in them, can you first tell us what we know so far about Kim's daughter? Well, as with most things related to North Korea, we know very little for certain about the girl because there is no clear way to verify speculation or intelligence reports based on second-hand sources, particularly when it comes to the leader's family, as Pyongyang can be quite secretive about these things until it chooses to announce the details. However, based on what little information is available, she is largely believed to be his second child, Jue, who is around 9 or 10 years old. This is what South Korea's National Intelligence Service, as well as several experts, have suggested, although state media very clearly avoided mentioning her name directly. Uh, we know about Jue because, um, in fact, she's the only one of Kim's children whose name we know, thanks to U.S. basketball star Dennis Rodman, who visited North Korea in 2013 and met the leader and his family. Later that year, he revealed that during his visit, he held the uh, leader's baby girl, Jue, in his arms, and that is how we learned about her. This also effectively confirmed uh, NIS reports suggesting that Kim and his wife, Lee Solju, had a child in late 2012. Um, other than this daughter, NIS reports also suggest that they have a son born in 2010 and a child believe, uh, born in 2017 believed to be a daughter. But again, nothing is known about them for certain, including their names. And at this point, we cannot really independently verify these NIS reports or speculation from inside the country. Sure. So even though North Korean state media has released photos of Kim and his daughter, who we think is his daughter, uh, holding hands, uh, we're still not officially sure of her name. So it is unusual then for North Korea to reveal its uh, leader's child at such a young age. For example, when were Kim Jong-il and Kim, Kim Jong-un first unveiled to the outside world? Do we know? Well, as you say, it is rare. In fact, it's essentially unheard of for North Korean leaders to reveal their children to both the North Korean public as well as the international audiences at such a young age when they are still children. Kim Jong-un himself made his first reported public appearance uh, in 2010. uh, That's when uh, North Korea came to know of him a little over a year before his father died and before he himself became leader. Mm. And in Kim Jong-un's case, he was also seemingly fast-tracked into his role as Kim Jong-un's successor because his father was unwell. So it came quite late in in Kim Jong-un's life. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-il himself, he joined the ruling Workers' Party in 1961 by the time he was already an adult and he was a university student. But he emerged as more of a public presence in the late 60s and early 70s. And over the ne- uh, next few decades, he was groomed to succeed Kim Il-sung as leader of North Korea. So for Jue, assuming it is her, uh, to be revealed at some, such a young age is historic, uh, unprecedented even. That said, we must 
remember that she has not been named yet, which is significant in its own terms, in terms of how state media operates. She has been presented as the beloved daughter of Kim Jong-un rather than a public figure herself. So in that sense, her introduction is still far from the level of her father's and grandfather's introductions and is made to be more about Kim Jong-un rather than about her. Mm. Okay, so let's get into a bit more of the reasons why North Korea are revealing uh, now, because it is uh, quite a surprise. Uh, it was quite startling when these uh, pictures of Kim Jong-un and Chue were released, showing him taking care of her so affectionately and so out in the open as well. Uh, so, Mr. Reddy, why do we think Kim Jong-un chose to show his daughter now in this way? Uh, what could be the motives uh, for revealing his daughter at this particular, particular time? Well... As you say, naturally, her unexpected appearance, her sudden appearance, at that too at such a young age, has raised questions about why Kim Jong-un introduced her to North Korean audiences as well as the wider world right now. Uh, there is a lot of speculation, of course. Many theories are being thrown around, but experts remain, remain divided. Mm. Some suggest that this could be a clear sign that Kim Jong-un is revealing to the world his designated successor. And in this regard, they kind of link it to his long-speculated health issues. Uh, As you may recall, in 2020, he was out of the public eye for about three weeks, and that led to a lot of rumors at the time that he may be in a grave condition, possibly even dying. He re-emerged after that brief gap, but it kind of reinforced long-held concerns or belief among North Korea observers that the biggest threat to North Korean regime actually lies in the leader's health, particularly if he dies suddenly, Uh, And so some are now suggesting that this is a sign his health may be deteriorating and that he is introducing his successor early enough to allow her to settle. But other experts disagree, to be honest, suggesting that this is more about portraying Kim Jong-un as more human, as a caring father and family man. And as I said earlier, state media did not name the daughter in the two reports so far. They've framed her as an extension of the leader Mm. of putting Kim Jong-un at the center. So experts say that by showing this side of Kim Jong-un, state media are showing a leader who cares about his family as well as the people indirectly. And in some ways, it's also in character for him to show his family more than his father and grandfather did. Uh, He also uh, has sort of shown off his wife, Ri Soljo, in the past. Uh, So in some sense, this is a continuation of that, making giving him a chance to showcase his family. Sure. It'll be so interesting to to see what uh, the North Korean public think of uh, such photos. Uh, In her first appearance, Kim's daughter was seen with uh, Kim Jong-un at an intercontinental ballistic missile test launch site. Uh, What do you think that tells us? Some have said that it shows Kim's confidence in the safety and technical capability of the missile, that he wouldn't have taken his daughter and shown the world if there was any chance of it being a failure. Um, well, certainly there is that aspect, there is that confidence in the safety of and the efficacy of the missile. Uh, even earlier this year, there was a supposed launch, what North Korea claimed to be a launch of the Hwasong-17, which later outside analysis suggested may not have actually succeeded and they may have simply retested Hwasong-15. So they were presumably much more certain this time for him to take his family. We don't know if they were there the previous time, but certainly this time they were part of it. Uh, and it is, so in this sense, it is also interesting that her 
first reported public appearance, both the two appearance came in relation to the launch of the North Korea's largest ever ICBM, which is a grand occasion for the country's military goals and signifies her importance in a sense as well. And according to a former South Korea, senior North Korean official and defector, this shows that North Korea will remain a nuclear state even into the next generation. Mm. This was sort of reflected in a front page article in the ruling party daily, Nodom Shinmun, the following day, which described these weapons as monuments to be passed down to our descendants for generations to come, and said that just that Kim Jong-un is determined to stop North Korea's enemies from stealing the bright smiles of North Korean children. So in that sense, this wording, the imagery of Kim as a caring father, they have used the daughter's appearance as a symbol of Kim's intent to develop North Korea's missile and nuclear program to protect children. Right, I see. But uh, as we mentioned, she was revealed to the public again on Sunday. This time she was dressed in a long black winter coat with a fur collar. She was holding her father's arm as she stood in front of uniformed soldiers before uh, a massive missile on top of a launch truck. Uh, other pictures showed the daughter talking to her father as people cheered in the background. She was also shaking hands with some of the officials. And the state media described her as Kim's most beloved child. When her first photos were released, a lot of analysts said it was perhaps too early to speculate about any sort of succession implications, especially because she is so young. But a second set of photos in just over a week is inevitably going to fuel such speculation. Uh, what are analysts saying about uh, the second set of photos as well, Mr. Reddy? Do you think it does perhaps hint at succession plans as well? Well, the wording certainly does indicate that she has his favor, described as his most beloved child. Uh, but some still experts still believe that this is still about humanizing leader himself. As I mentioned, it still doesn't name her. It makes him the center of this. But there were certainly other signs of her importance. For example, we saw four-star general Jiang Changha greeting her in a somewhat deferential manner, befitting someone from the ruling family. Uh, so she is earmarked as someone special. And again, speaking to former North Korean officials, they believe that her appearances so far definitely mark her out as the next leader, uh, which would be quite a break from tradition for North Korea, which has only ever had male leaders, and in general, Pyongyang's uh, hierarchy is quite male-dominated. This has not really been something that has benefited uh, the ruling family state has not benefited Kim Yo-jong, who hasn't been able to overcome that obstacle. I think many people say that this would still be a barrier. Her gender would be a barrier to her becoming leader if Kim Jong-un dies. But it's possible, some say, that um, the Swiss-educated Kim Jong-un, he might have different ideas from his father and grandfather. This remains to be seen, this theory that he could be a reformer. But at the very least, we can say that he is more willing to put his daughter front and center than what we have seen Mm. before. And all we can do is continue to watch for signs from North Korea. Um, for we will, we are likely to continue seeing more of her. Whether or not that indicates that she will be a successor, that mm. remains to be seen. Sure, as you said, unfortunately, it is a lot of speculation for now. But these are clearly odd and unprecedented sites that we're seeing. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see if her, if her. The daughter does continue to appear in the public eye and see if she does take any role in the future as well. In the meantime, we'll leave it there. We'll be speaking to Shreyas Reddy from NK News. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much.
Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 29.59 points, or 1.21% on Monday, ending the day at 2,408.27. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 15.66 points, or 2.13%, closing the day at 717.90. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 16.51 against the dollar, ending the day at 1,340.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Korea Trending, a daily segment looking at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee with us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Chang. It's good to see you. Okay, so what topics do you have for us today? Okay, so first we'll talk about a helicopter crash on Sunday in Kanwon province that killed all five people on board. We'll also learn about the 17th Busan Fireworks Festival set to be held next month for the first time in three years. And finally, we'll find out what led thousands to protest Beijing's COVID-19 policy over the weekend in major cities across China. Okay, so let's start with that first story then, a helicopter crash in Kawan province. Can you tell us more? Yeah, so five people are dead after a helicopter crashed in the eastern coastal area of Yangyang, Kawan province on Sunday. According to authorities, the S-58T chopper, co-rented by the regional municipalities of Yangyang, Sokchou and Gosong to survey areas for forest fires, crashed on a hill at around 10.50am. Now, the chopper is said to have taken off at around 9.30 a.m. from the Sorak area in Sokcho City, about 30 kilometers from the crash site. Now, fire authorities sent a rescue team to the site, but five people were found dead at the scene. Firefighters were also mobilized after the crash caused a fire at the, air, uh, at the aircraft and the nearby area, blazing about 100 meter square meters of forest. Yes, so have authorities identified all the bodies then? Yes, shortly after the accident, authorities identified three people, the chopper's 71-year-old pilot and 54-year-old co-pilot, whose names were recorded in the flight plan, and a mechanic in his 20s. Now, the other two passengers were identified as women in their 50s on Monday through fingerprints left on the mechanic's car. Authorities plan to carry out a post-mortem examination on the five bodies on Monday while continuing their investigation into what caused the crash. Right, so there are question marks, especially about these two women, who they were and what they were doing on the helicopter, because there was no record of them on the flight plan as well. Mm. And the helicopter itself was also a very old model as well, right? Yeah, that's correct. So the S-58T is an older model produced in 1975. Now, this is the type of aircraft that crashed back in 1989 in Yongdok County, North Gyeongsang province. All 13 people on board sadly perished in the crash. Right, because it was so old, there was apparently no black box as well, which is making finding out what happened more difficult. Our first thoughts, of course, go out to those who died and their families, but unfortunately there are some unanswered questions. Uh, that does raise the issue of perhaps uh, safety standards uh, lacking as well. Hopefully authorities are able to find out what happened quickly. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Yeah, so the 17th Busan Fireworks Festival will be held next month for the first time in three years. Now, the Busan Metropolitan City announced on Monday that the event will take place on December 17th along the Guangali Beach and nearby areas, including Dongbek Island and Igide Coastal Park. Now, the city organised the event to bring comfort to citizens amid the COVID-19 pandemic and as part of efforts to promote the nation's bid to host the 2030 World Expo in the southern port city. 
Right, the first fireworks festival in Busan in three years, like we saw in Seoul earlier this uh, earlier this year as well. Mm. Uh, but doesn't the event in Busan usually take place in late October? Yes, that's correct. And this year it was initially set to take place on November 5th. However, the festival was indefinitely postponed after the government designated a seven-day national mourning period from October 30th in the wake of the horrific Itaewon crowd crush. Mm. Now placing top priority on the safety of visitors on the day, the city has expanded the size of its safety personnel by more than 50% from its initial plan. Now the city will also keep a close eye on six key access roads around the Gwangali Beach and take steps to break up large crowds in such areas. Now, the number of surveillance cameras near the, uh, near the site of the festival will also increase from 16 to 64 to monitor crowd situations. Yes, other than the date, I also understand there's been another change compared to previous years. Yes, so that would be the time the festival starts. Now, given that the event will be held during the winter season instead of fall, the city has moved up the showtime by an hour to 7pm. Yes, hopefully it will be a safe and fun day out for uh, everyone in Busan. Uh, but wrap up warm as well because it could be quite cold that time of year. Mm. Okay, let's move on to our final story for today. What else do you have for us? Yeah, so the Chinese people are increasingly growing angry over the Chinese government's zero COVID policy, which has been in place for nearly three years now. Now, thousands of protesters hit the streets of Beijing, Shanghai, and other major cities across China between last Friday and Sunday, with some yelling, step down Xi Jinping, step down Communist Party. These protests were sparked after 10 people died and nine were injured in an apartment fire in Urumqi, the capital of the far western region of Xinxiang, last Thursday. Now, claims spread throughout a social media that the tragedy resulted after firefighters were unable to swiftly put out the fire due to installations put up around around the apartment as part of the lockdown measures. Now, Urumqi has been placed under lockdown since August. Yes, so these protests have caught the attention of international media. Uh, What's been the response from city officials regarding these claims that the tragedy resulted after... uh, resulted due to uh, the strict lockdown measures. Right. So Urumqi officials held a late-night news conference last Friday, the day after the fire, and claimed that the apartment was not subject to lockdown as it was regarded to be located as a low-risk region in terms of COVID-19. Now, the officials said fire trucks had difficulty reaching the fire due to the cars that were parked out front of the building. Right. Even before this fire, though, many Chinese citizens were already angry over Beijing's strict uh, COVID-19 policy and its mm. combination of uh, stringent lockdowns and mass testing. Mm. There was also a case uh, allegedly of a baby that died just uh, last week due to the strict rules. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that incident as well? Yeah, so very sad. A four-month-old baby died while in quarantine at a hotel in the city of Zhengshuo last Thursday. Now, her death sparked public anger as it took her father 11 hours to get help after emergency services refused to assist. She finally was sent to a hospital 100 100 kilometres away, according to a news report and social media post. Sure, we'll see if these uh, protests continue to erupt and also how the Chinese authorities deal with it as well. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Walter, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.
It's time now for our Monday Sports Roundup World Cup Special. The tournament in Qatar is well underway and South Korea held their first match last Thursday. They held Uruguay to a 0-0 draw in their Group H opener, picking up a point. The Tegut Warriors will face off against Ghana later today. And the final group game against Portugal on Friday, uh, that's when it will be taking place. Will they get enough points to reach the top 16? We'll discuss that now with our two guests. First, we have back with us football writer Steve Price in the studio. Steve, hello. Yeah, great to be here. Yes, good to see you too. And connecting with us from Qatar once again is Paul Williams, a football journalist and the founding editor of the Asian Game, a website dedicated to all things football in Asia. Paul, it's great to connect to you too. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Paul, let me start with you. It's been over a week since you've arrived in Qatar. Uh, how have you found the experience so far? Uh, what's it been like, both uh, football and everything attending the games as well? Mm. I think over the past week, we just start on the football. There's been some remarkable football in terms of the results. Uh, the, the Saudi Arabia-Argentina game certainly captured the attention of the world. I was at the stadium that day and it was just a remarkable event, remarkable experience to be at um, and to experience that, that atmosphere and um, and that upset. We saw Germany uh, lost to, uh, to Japan as mm. well. That was an enormous upset. So we've seen some shock results. We saw Morocco beat Belgium as well. So from that point of view, from the, from the football point of view, it's been a, a pretty good tournament so far. And the experience in Qatar has been incredible. I mean, I know there were some reports early on that there was there was no vibe around Qatar, that it didn't feel like a, a proper World Cup. And uh, this is my first World Cup, so I have nothing to compare it to. But the, the vibe and the atmosphere across the, the city is absolutely fantastic. Every night, if you're down at the Sook, there is a fantastic vibe. There's fans from all around the world that are gathering and celebrating together. I was at the, the fan festival after Japan's win, and um, Japanese fans were, were flavour of the day. There was... Fans from Brazil, fans from Europe, fans from uh, all across the world wanting to get photos with the, the Japanese fans. And there is a, a real sort of community spirit here in Qatar that's uh, that's absolutely fantastic to see. So uh, off the field and on the field, it's been a, a fantastic week so far. Well, excellent. I think both Steve and I are quite jealous. Uh, Steve, looking at it from here in South Korea. Uh, what have you made of this uh, World Cup overall? As we said, some amazing results and goals, but uh, quite a few goalless draws as well. Five, I think, so far in all. Yeah, I mean, at least we've had the fan zones back here in Korea, so there's a bit of a World Cup atmosphere going on. Sure. Um, I went down to it on Monday, and it was so well organised for something they put on only a few days. They only got approval a few days earlier. Mm. Uh, there's been... There's actually been 67 goals so far in under 30 games. So there's more than two goals a game so far in the World Cup. But yeah, there's been well five goalless draws so far. I think the reason behind that is partly because of uh, the teams that are playing. Uh, you don't want to lose that first game because uh, the teams that got those goalless draws, they're generally the teams that are either kind of second ranked in the group and third or fourth. And so they're probably thinking in their mind, if we lose this game, and lose to the, the big team in our group, then we're eliminated. So, like, for example, we have, like, Denmark and Tunisia, and you know, they've got France in their group. So you're thinking if you lose that game, you could be out. So uh, sure. I think there's a bit of caginess in those games in the opening round. Uh, the only goalless draw that really surprised me, I thought, was uh, England-USA, um, especially for USA. It seems like a big result kind of psychologically. 
But in terms of the group, uh, it doesn't do a lot for them. They would have been better off going out for the win a bit more in the second half. Sure, as a, a Brit as well, watching England do uh, get a nil-nil draw was quite difficult. But uh, yeah, something we're used to, I guess. Though. <laughs> yes, uh, another one of those scoreless draws, of course, came between South Korea and Uruguay last Thursday. It was a hard-fought nil-nil draw, I would say. Both teams had some great chances, but they couldn't quite find the back of the net. Steve, I think uh, we said a draw for Korea from this game would have been a good result. Uh, so Korea should be happy then, do you think? What did you make of the performance? Well, I thought the way they set out, um, especially if you compare it to the last World Cup with the opening game against Sweden, uh, they had a very positive mindset. They were kind of in control of the game a lot, mm. uh, and they had a lot of possession in Uruguay's half. Um, but saying that, they couldn't really create any... They only created really one really good chance. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of Huang Zhou and how he missed that chance. <sighs> but at the end of the day, you know, strikers do miss chances. That chance goes in maybe one out of three or every other time mm. so sometimes you're going to miss it and if the team's only creating one good chance you can't blame the one player for missing it you've got to create more and more chances than that part of that is also because you guys defense is so strong it's one of the strongest in the tournament um, but apart from that I thought Korea played generally pretty well uh, and Uruguay's chances when they hit the posts were kind of ones which normally wouldn't go in so mm. uh Korea shouldn't feel like they were a bit lucky that they didn't go in because those ones normally don't. And if they had of, Korea would have been quite unlucky. Sure, that miss from Hungi Jo was heartbreaking, though. Uh, Paul, what did you make of the game and Korea's performance? I agree with you on Hungi Jo's miss. I threw my head back into my hands after uh, after he missed that one. I agree with Steve. I, I thought it was a pretty positive performance, just the most important part of the game missing, which is putting the ball into the, the back of the net. But... Um, aside from that, I like the intent that Korea came out with. Um, as Steve said, they controlled that game for large parts of uh, the game. And it's, that's probably something I didn't expect going into a game against Uruguay. Um, you probably expect maybe to, for Korea to be a little bit more on, on the back foot. But, but they controlled the, the flow of that game for, for large parts of, of that game. So um, I thought Jung Woo Young in the, in the midfield, along as, uh, alongside Hwang Yin Bom as well, were, were absolutely fantastic. Mm. Um, a number of you know important tackles, important interceptions, and they really sort of set the tempo for Korea. And I think the the thing that told the story for me was that it's very much a typically Korean performance. I mean, they ran and ran and ran and gave absolutely everything. And as soon as the final whistle went, I saw four players just slump to the ground in exhaustion because. Mm they'd basically run themselves into the ground. And that probably tells the story a little bit that they gave absolutely everything that they got. I guess going into particularly the next game, we'll get onto this shortly against Ghana, they've just now got to find that final product and to be able to you know, score the goals and create more opportunities. But for a first-up performance, I thought it was really good. Sure, we'll talk about the Ghana game in just a bit. Steve, in the second half, uh, Bento brought on the young Mallorca midfielder Yi Gang-ing to the delight of Korean fans, I would say. It was a surprise because he hasn't played under Bento, I believe, since uh, March 2021, I think. Uh, even when he was called up for two friendlies in September, he was still stuck on the bench. So it seemed Korean fans loved him, but then Bento perhaps wasn't so keen. Uh, that was until that's this Thursday, last Thursday. Were you surprised, Steve, that... Uh, 
Igarin was brought in the second half, and how do you assess his performance? Right. Um, yeah, everybody in this uh, the studio also I think was very excited that he was brought in. Um, <laughs> if you go to the general Korean games and you see the reception that Son Heung-min gets every time, like if he's on the bench and gets brought on, or every time he touches the ball, in Guangzhou, I mean, it was a bit like that with Igarin. Um, mm. Everybody was cheering when he came on. Um, like screaming when he touched the ball. So it's definitely uh, exciting everybody uh, over here in Korea. Uh, I thought, yeah, Korea needed to change something at that point because they couldn't really break uh, Uruguay down. Mm. And after Lee Gang-in did come on, he made two key passes and he gave the defenders uh, a few difficulties. He won a few good free kicks. Uh, so I was impressed by him in his quarter of an hour that he had on the pitch. Uh, I don't think Bente is going to start him in this match, but... Mm. Uh, I'd like to see him, if Korea are not winning, um, to bring him on a bit earlier in the second half, maybe around the 60-minute mark, and let him really kind of have an impact. Sure. Paul, all in all, a decent start for Korea? I absolutely think so, yeah. The important thing is you've just got to try and pick up points in as many games as you can. So to pick up a point in your first game, which is notionally um, one of the, the toughest games that you've you've got in the competition, is is a fantastic start. They now play Korea. Uh, they now play Ghana, which on paper is the most winnable game in the group. That's not to suggest it's going to be easy, but you look at the other two teams in Uruguay and Portugal. You'd, you'd isolate Ghana as the, perhaps the team that is uh, the most beatable in this group. So you pick up uh, you know a win there um, later on today and. You know, you've got four points, which is often enough to, to get you out of the group, and it sets yourself up uh, really nicely. So, I, I think that uh, that draw set themselves up for um, for further progression, and hopefully, we can um, um, we can see another win today, and um, they'll be really set up to get out of the uh, out of the group. Sure. Let's talk a bit more about Ghana and what Korea will be facing uh, in this second group match in just a few hours' time. Uh, Paul, what kind of team will? Korea be coming up against. Uh, you said that uh, perhaps uh, Ghana is the weakest team in the group. I believe they're 60th in the FIFA rankings, while South Korea is 28th. Uh, but what do you think? And what did you see in their 3-2 loss to Portugal as well? Mm, I didn't actually see all of the game. It was, it was. I think it was on uh, immediately after the uh, the Korea-Uruguay game. So mm. it was on in the media centre while we are finishing our working. So kind of had half an eye on uh, on the game while we're trying to uh, finish our work. So I, I didn't see all of the game, but I mean, I know this is a very strong Portugal side that a lot of people think can actually go all the way in this tournament. So the fact that they pushed them all the way suggests, you know, they're not going to be uh, a pushover. They're not going to be easy to meet. They've got some, you know, great attacking talent as well. Andre Ayu plays in this part of the world, but is a, a fantastic talent. So Korea will have to be careful. Um if Kim Min Jae is missing at the the back, I think that um, uh, that would be a concern because um, the attacking talent that, that Ghana is going to have will, will cause some trouble. So you, you'd want to have your um, your lead defender there at the back. But yeah, they're going to come up a side that's uh, come up against a side that's going to be difficult to beat. So it's going to be a, a great match later on. Right. So we understand that Huang Yitan definitely won't be uh, making an appearance mm. in this game. He's uh, not physically ready. But we're still waiting to hear. If uh, Kim Min Jae, I believe, will be playing, Steve, it's essential Korea really win tonight, right, uh, to make it out of the group. How do you think they'll fare? Right. Um, so I mean, they need to win one of their two games, either this one or Portugal. Uh, there is a scenario where they can get away with three draws and still qualify, but that re- really relies on the results going <laughs> yes. perfectly. A lot of maths would involve there, I um, think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was waiting down in the coffee shop, I was working it all out, <laughs> and. 
I mean, Portugal, I think there's also a game where they could win if Portugal have already qualified uh, and they make some changes. I think Port- uh, Portugal are beatable, um, and we'll talk about them later. But really, you're going to pick up this game as the one you've circled as, this is a game we want to win. Mm. Uh, and everybody here, we're looking about uh, Kim in jae and what's going on there. It's a bit of a worry. Um, he you know, he wasn't in training for two days. He came back on Sunday. Uh, he's not really done much team training, but they've already done that already. Um, he knows they've played this defence loads of times before, so they all know how to play with each other. Mm. Uh, so if he's fit, then I think they can just put him in. There's a bit of a worry, though, that um, even if he's fit enough to play, his performance might suffer because of the injury. And I think Paolo Bento, in his press conference after the game, kind of suggested that happened a bit in the Uruguay match towards the end. They couldn't quite attack in the way they wanted to because of Kim Jay's injury. Yes, it is a worry. He is an absolute rock in that defence. Uh, and even without uh, two days of training, you'd still want him in the team. Uh, but we'll mm-hmm. see if he is available or not, uh, whether if he is up for it, and hopefully, even if he is, he'll be able to put in a strong performance as well. Uh, Paul, what more would you like to see from Korea today? What do you think they need to do to win? They just need a little bit more creativity in the, the final third, I think. Steve mentioned before that he doesn't think Lee Kangin will start, and I, I certainly agree with that. I can't see Palo Bento throwing him in for the start, but I think they need a player like um, Lee Kangin to, to come in and, and provide that, that creativity. I mean, Lee Jae Sung is a, is a fantastic player, um, but I'm not sure he provides the creativity necessarily that Korea need at the moment. He's a little bit more of a the way I see it, a little bit more industrious um, in that role. Na Sang Ho come in for, for Huang Yichan as well. I think missing Huang Yichan is a, a big blow because um, he provides that little bit of extra quality on a on the flank opposite to, to Son Hung Min. Um, I noticed a lot of times when Son got on the ball, he was double, triple teamed because the opposition know the strength that he possesses. And mm. um, if you give him too much time on the ball, he will create opportunities and it still feels like so much of the attacking burden rests on Son's shoulders, but it'll be the same again today where he gets double and triple teams. So you're going to need players like, you know, Lee Jae-sung, Na Sang-ho. Whether he starts Swang Ijo up the top or whether Cho Go-sung comes in as well will be really interesting because I thought Cho looked really good when he came on, uh, a little bit more mobile, mm. gave them um, a little bit of a, a different look at the point of the attack. So I wouldn't mind seeing him start today um, and just to echo what Steve said when, when he came in comes on I'd like it to be a little bit earlier in the game to give him a little bit more time to have an impact so um, they just need to I think I think they did everything right as I said in that opening game now it's about getting the creativity and creating more than just that one chance that they did uh, against Uruguay Sure, and uh, this first hurdle against Ghana, that's the, probably the most important right now. We probably shouldn't even be thinking about Portugal until uh, after that game. But, uh, Steve, Portugal, how formidable are they? Uh, Paul earlier said that uh, some have picked Portugal to go all the way as well. Uh, what do you think and what do you make of their performance against Ghana? Yeah, I mean, if you look at their squad on paper, even their substitutes bench is so much stronger than anybody else in this group, it seems. And, yeah, they they don't seem to have an obvious real weak point. But when you look at the goals they conceded against Ghana, those were kind of ones which were defensive mistakes that Ghana kind of pounced on. There's even one right at the end where their goalkeeper kind of wasn't concentrating and Iñaki Williams came in for Ghana, nicked the ball and just slipped over. So um, it could have been 3-3. You could see in the highlights, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo had his head in his hands uh, on that one. Uh, so I think 
even though they look really good on paper, uh, I think they're not really as well drilled as maybe like the likes of France or the likes of Brazil. And also in that last game, yeah, the situation's going to be a bit different in terms of everybody's going to know what they need to do. Perhaps Portugal don't will have one eye already on the, on the knockout stages if they win against Uruguay tonight. Mm. Uh, the weak point, maybe, when you look at their squad, it's so strong. It seems a bit strange to say this, but like Manchester United, their weak point could be Cristiano Ronaldo, right. uh, especially in terms of kind of pressing um, the opposition. And that could kind of give Korea a bit of a breather uh, in order to pass the ball around and, you know, that could help them out a bit and give them a bit of time to get their heads in the right place. OK, well, we'll be catching up with both of you again next week when we'll know if Korea has succeeded in uh, getting out of the group or not. Uh, but uh, quick answers, Paul, Steve. Do you think Korea will be able to do it? Paul, first. I want to remain optimistic. Yeah, I do think they can get out of the group. I've tipped them to, to win today's game 2-1 against Ghana. So that puts them on four points, which, depending on other results in the group, may be enough. So I'm going to tip Korea to get out of this group. Steve, he's predicted 2-1, but uh, I know we want a bigger goal margin to make the last game even slightly more easier, right? Uh, it's always good to have a, a good goal margin, but really the points on the board is, uh, is vital as well. And so much also depends on that result in the other game tonight uh, and how Uruguay do. If uh, Portugal went out and destroyed them 4-0 or something... We could forget about the goal difference in that way. So uh, there's um, yeah, a lot of factors. The most important thing, though, is to try and get that win tonight and then you've given yourself the best possible chance. Sure. So part one is done. Arguably the most important part two is coming up tonight. And we'll see if the team's chances are still alive for part three coming up on Friday. Paul, thank you for connecting with us. And Steve, thank you for coming in, gentlemen. Till next time, take care. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. My name is Yute Pyongyang. I'm a Pansori singer and a member of the National Changgul Company of Korea. And you are now listening to Korea 24. We've come now to Morning Edition Preview, a daily segment where we take a look at some stories that are coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have in the studio with us our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what stories do you have for us today? First is Kwak Yun Su's article in the Entertainment and Arts section of the Korea Times. It's about the upcoming biographical film, A Birth. It follows the story of Korea's first priest, St. Andrew Kim Dae-gun. It's actually my first time reading about this story and it sounds interesting. Okay, so it's a biopic about South Korea's first priest and it's called yes. A Birth. Uh, for our listeners who may, know, who may not know this story, can you uh, tell us a bit more about the priest? Sure. Kim was born and raised a Catholic, and when he was 15, he travelled to a seminary in Macau and China. Later in 1845, Kim was ordained as a priest in the cathedral in Shanghai. The story sadly takes a turn for the worse, though, as Kim was beheaded at the age of 25 in 1846. Mm. The article mentions that this was during the wave of persecution of Catholics during the Joseon Kingdom. The movie, directed by Park Hung-sik, focuses on the time from when Kim left to study in Macau up until he was martyred for his faith. Yes, uh, it must be quite difficult uh, uh, to take on this role for any actor mm. who portrays Kim in the film, right? Right. Actor Yoon Shin Yoon will portray Kim, 
During a press conference for the film on Wednesday, Yoon said, I tried to approach him as a bold adventurer who was eager to explore the unforeseen world and accept Western culture through religion, languages and education. He admitted that portraying Kim was difficult and that it made him want to become a better person. Mm. So A Birth will hit local theatres on November 30th, but I believe it has already been released in a different country, right? A very notable country. <laughs> yes, it has. The film premiered in Vatican City on November 16th. <laughs> the actors were actually able to meet Pope Francis in person. Apparently, Pope Francis told you that he has a face of a saint. Yes, imagine <laughs> being told that you have a f- face of a saint by... His Holiness himself. <laughs> I would not let that down. I really sure, wouldn't. sure. It's a, quite a seal of approval. Okay, it sounds like an interesting film. Let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Next is Park Yuna's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. With Korea playing against Ghana in the World Cup tonight, I found an article that's about the two countries. El Anatsui, who is a famous artist from Ghana, is holding his second show in Seoul. He has previously held exhibitions at the British Museum, the Paris Metropolitan Museum of Art, and more. His last show in Seoul was in 2017. Okay, so it's a very timely exhibition <laughs> considering uh, what's going to happen tonight. So tell us about the show. It's called El Anatsui Day After Night and features a six metre tall installation made from bottle caps. Looking at the picture in the article, it looks amazing. <laughs> the, unst- the installation doesn't look like it's made from bottle caps unless you look really close. From a normal distance, it looks like a golden tapestry. Wow, okay. According to the article, the artist has used bottle caps for his work since the late 1990s, but this piece was made specifically for the exhibition. So visitors will be able to see something unique when they go then? Exactly. The reason the artist started working with bottle caps is after he discovered littered bottles outside his studio in 1999. Another piece called Of Realities and Illusion is also being shown for the first time. The exhibition runs until January 29th at Barakat Contemporary in Seoul. Right, so it's a way to celebrate the Ghana-Korea relationship, <laughs> uh, no matter uh, what the World Cup result is <laughs> tonight. OK, we'll leave it there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. Uh, I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.